This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Something else. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wordy Podcast, Something Rhymes With Purple, with me, Susie Dent, who happily has headphones on hiding her barnet, which is getting ever longer, and Giles Brandreth. And Giles, before you say anything, I have genuinely thought over the last few weeks that I really like you with longer hair. Well, it's fortunate, isn't it? Because I've not been able to cut it. No, but it so. really suits you. There's a slight, don't take this the wrong way, Dick Van Dyke look about it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I do take it the wrong way. No, I think no, Dick Van Dyke is nearly 100 years old. No, but he's got an amazing head. He has still got a lot of hair. He does have a lot of hair. And it really suits you because normally you're shaved-ish. I am normally shaved because I didn't yeah. want people to think that I was attempting a comb-over of any kind. No. But I'm now, now it's growing, it seems to be growing more lustrously than ever. Yeah. And I've decided not to cut it until Good. I can sit on it. Okay, maybe not so good. How long have you ever had your hair? My hair was incredibly long when I was little. And I remember the trauma of my first haircut, which was at a department store called Bentles in Kingston. Mm. And I wanted the kind of Charlie's Angels look. Do you remember Charlie's Angels? Of course I do. Yeah. And I wanted the kind of flick. Just just didn't really go particularly well for me. So I grew it longer again. But I should say, uh, if people haven't guessed already, that we wanted to talk about hair for this episode because it's been such a preoccupation for many of us during lockdown. We'll come to the realisation that we're not only incredibly reliant upon teachers, um, for those those of us who've had to homeschool, but also upon hairdressers. And many of us have resorted to uh, wielding the scissors ourselves or asking a fellow family member or children to cut things for us or just to let it all hang out literally. And I think we've both gone for the latter option. We have. I, mm. I wouldn't risk letting my darling wife near me with a pair of scissors because she might decide that enough is enough. I know she feels enough is enough, but she might actually <laughs> do something about it. So I've not been to the barber. Actually, what what does our hair say about us? I mean, is hair being significant? Is, yeah. there, is there language? Well, hair is, I mean, throughout history, it's had all sorts of associations, whether they're military, you have to think of the, you know, the crew cut, for example, sexual. If you think about Samson and Delilah and how Samson's um, strength and sexual prowess really comes from his hair. When Delilah cuts it all off, he's just, you know, he's impotent pretty much in every single way. Religious connections, if you think about the tonsures of um, of priests and monks. I mean, so many different connections throughout history. And also many of our words have hair secretly hidden in their history, which we can perhaps come to later. Don't rush on. Before we, can we unpack some of that before we yeah. go on? Military, you mentioned crew cut. Yes. That I think of as an American 
uh, like sort of standing up on end, very short. Yes. What is the origin of the crew cut? Is it American I, military? Where does that come from? No, well, I think of it as being associated with military, but actually in terms of its etymology, first record is from the 1930s in reference to the boat crews at Harvard and Yale. So you're oh. right about the American connection, but yes, not explicitly military at the beginning. And there's the buzz cut as well, isn't there? But that, that's a slightly what, different... What's the, I think, what's the buzz cut? The buzz cut is, I think, from the sound of the barber's clipper. I'm going to look up a definition of the buzz cut for you. And has that got um, a military association? Um, no, possibly not. Although it would be interesting to hear from those in the military as to what they have to go for these days. So the buzz cut is is the sort of short haircut, and it's quite bristly, it says here. Definitely American, and yes, possible military connection there. But yes, I've personally never had a buzz cut, but I imagine it comes from the clippers. Of course, there are tribal associations too. I think of the of when, when I was a child, we used to have films on television that were called cowboy and Indian films. Mm. We wouldn't call them that now, but in which they featured Native Americans, the Mohicans. I remember Mohicans. a movie called The Last of the Mohicans, in which there was a Mohican style, a kind of shaved around the sides and a bit in the middle standing up and saluting. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, so that was based on James Fenimore Cooper, wasn't it? His novel, uh, The Last of the Mohicans. And that, you're right, it's from North American native people who spoke Algonquian. Isn't that interesting? Daniel Day-Lewis, who was at school with me, um, but that's neither here nor there, I don't think he could play that part now. But are there other uh, haircuts associated? I, mean, I think of the Mohican well, haircut. Religion, we've talked about the religious haircut. So tonsure actually goes back to the Latin for shearing. So it was all about shearing sheep originally. That's the little bald, the little bald bit in the middle. Exactly. And it's supposed to be like a halo? Well, a lot of people have made that analogy. But if you look at the history of it, it's more a renunciation of fashion. So there are so many associations there. We've talked about it, that those kind of tribal associations were one tribe, if you like, and I'm not speaking necessarily about ethnicity, but were slaves. And so slaves were um, traditionally made to completely shave their heads to denote their low status um, horrendously. So this is looking back to, you know, antiquity rather than more modern slavery. Either way, hideous, as opposed to the kind of, you know, the lush locks of their owners. And early monks might have styled themselves as kind of slaves of Christ. So, you know, it was demonstrating their obedience to God. That's one theory, that it was just all about showing that they were humble. Your right hair does say it all. Mm. I'm thinking now suddenly of the Roundheads and the Cavaliers at the time of the English Civil yeah. War. And yeah. Cromwell's people, known as the Roundheads, they had short hair, didn't they? Yes, they uh, did. And inter interestingly, both Roundhead and Cavalier were insults. So Cavalier was something that was, first of all, it says it's, it's linked to the Latin caballus, meaning a horse. So it was linked to chivalry, but it also became associated with kind of foppery and people who just, you know, were highly embellished and a bit of a dandy, which they thought the king's men were. And eventually the king's men actually liked that term. So they adopted that. And Roundhead, likewise, was a term of abuse towards um, Cromwell's parliamentarian troops. And they too thought, oh, we'll have that. So it was examples of epithets that were kind of used against people and then picked up by them themselves. And the cavaliers, uh, the king's people, they did wear wigs that were very fancy. And that yes. went on for 
quite a while. I mean, people wore wigs for hundreds of years or more. The wigs were everything. I remember, you know, the, the wonderfully esoteric um, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. It, we, we should talk about that actually in one of our programmes because it's the most brilliant reference book, but totally random on occasion. But but Brewer himself, in writing a lot about hair, writes a personal note that his mum mentioned, or his mother mentioned how in order for her to have her proper hairdo before going out in the evening, she, her maids had to step up on a ladder to reach the top of her hair because she had so much extra hair, whether it was wigs or, you know, extra locks attached, it just reached such a height. And that was the tradition. That's where we get the idea of a big wig from, you know, oh, the elite. Very good. And of course, mm. people do still wear wigs for special occasions. Barristers in certain courts and judges wear wigs both as a uniform and to distance them from being the person they are every day, yes. giving them their role. And of course, you do see people wearing wigs for either cosmetic reasons or because they've lost their own hair yeah. and want to wear When I was a boy, wigs were very obvious mm. and not very good. I, I do remember there were two people that older listeners, British older listeners will recall. There was a man called Michael Miles who was, who had a game show um, and he was a contemporary of Huey Green and he wore a wig and I remember meeting him and being totally, I was fixated by the wig, particularly mm -hmm. because it was getting glued on. It was a very hot day and the glue began to sort of dribble down the front of his forehead. Um, oh. And that happened to me at a later date. I thought, oh, dear, this can't happen again. And I was sitting next to a journalist called Godfrey Wynne. Have you heard of him? No. Isn't that tragic? He was more, in his day, he was more famous than Piers Morgan. Have you heard of Piers Morgan? <laughs> I have. Yeah, there you are. So he was a journalist <laughs> like Piers Morgan. And he okay. wrote a newspaper column. And he was hugely famous, hugely mm -hmm. famous. Anyway, I sat next to him at lunch. And it was a very hot day at the Dorchester Hotel. And not only... He, he was so hot, he began scratching his head. And as he scratched it, the wig began to sort of move about uh, and the heat. And anyway, by the end of the lunch, his face was covered with glue. <laughs> his no. wig was skewed. It was ghastly. Dear. What's intriguing is that my wife has made an appointment with the hairdresser. I'm going to pop into the barber. Mm -hmm. Why is she going to a hairdresser? Why am I going to a barber? I know what a hairdresser does. They dress hair. What does a barber do? Well, a barber originally were razor surgeons, if you like. So oh. the history of the profession is pretty bumpy and it's pretty bloodthirsty because up until around the 1900s, um, barbers wielded the knife as much as they wielded the scissors. So they would do things like, they would do routine surgery and dentistry. So they'd lance abscesses and pull out decaying teeth. And sometimes they would set broken bones, um, amazingly. But above all, he was a cutter. So he essentially drew blood and this was seen, you know, it was like an essential method for balancing the bodily humours was to draw blood. And so he used a sharp knife and he would, he would place bowls of the red stuff from his clients in the shop window as a sign Goodness. of his credentials. But you know, outside the premises, I'm sure a lot of people know this, that the now famous Barber's Pole, um, I don't know if this is the same globally, but certainly in Britain, they're striped in red for blood and white for the bandages applied afterwards. So when you see the red and white pole, that's what it goes back to. Very good. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet yes. Street. Very good. Yes. 
But that's a bit horrific. So I think hairdressers, that's the slightly more recent term. But, you know, there's so many, if you think about it, there's just so many different terms for different types of haircuts there have been over the years. So you've got the barnet, which is, you know, well, I suppose that's more just hair anyway, isn't it? Isn't that's it? rhyming that's slang. rhyming slang. Barnet flower, yes. hair. Yes. But I get um, it and I ask for a short back and sides. Well, I used to. Okay. Which is okay. often short back and sides. But people yes. go and ask for a bob. What's a bob? A bob bob has been used for anything kind of cut down or you know, bobbed for quite a long time. But the other idea with Bob is that it's been applied to similar things to a blob. So something kind of round, like a, a, a bob or a blob of glass. So a bob haircut, you could think as being sort of fairly round on the head and quite short. So I think that's where it comes from. The mullet is a bit of a uh, a mystery. So the mullet is, you know, f- famously sported by German footballers. It's probably an extension of mullet head, which was an insult for a stupid person. But, you know, quite why it was applied to that hairstyle where the hair's cut really short at the front and sides and left long at the back, we don't know. But the Beastie Boys, the US hip hop group, have said that they coined it or certainly popularised it. So who knows? But I don't ever go for a mullet, Jazz. I don't think you would. I don't think I will. I don't really mind what my conch looks like. Conch! That's a word for head, isn't it? Not hair. But where does conch come from? Conch, it's interesting. I wonder if conch goes back to, because it's the nose originally, isn't it? Of course it is. Your conch is your nose. Your conch is your nose. But is it also your head? Yes, I get. I got bopped on the conch. Yeah, if you're off your conch, you are a bit crazy, aren't you? But I think originally it was applied to, it, it was definitely applied to the nose and it goes back to the French conch. Q-U-E, meaning a shell. So possibly your nose looks a little bit like a shell. Who knows? But if you are conked out, you've been punched on the nose or the head. When my mother went to the hairdresser, she went for a perm. Now, I think that's short, permanent wave. Yes. And that's a sort of 1950s or maybe even earlier. Yeah, perms were all the rage, though, in in the 70s and 80s, weren't they? So, yes, short for a permanent wave. And that goes back to the early 1900s. Um, the word itself. So yeah, don't ever have a permanent wave either. When you were a little girl and you had that long hair, did you have mm. it in pigtails ever? Uh, yes, I did have it in pigtails, just because they look like the tail of a pig. I think that's where that comes from. And similarly, ponytail, pigtail, ponytail. Ponytail. I still have ponytails quite a lot. So yeah, but originally a pigtail was a was tobacco twisted into a thin rope or a roll. So only later was it applied to to hair. Goodness. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, very do with that one. But yeah, so you think about all the different styles. But as I say, maybe we can we can come back to this. All the words in English that are linked to hair, they oh. may well surprise you. I'm just going to leave you with one of them, yes. which is the word toilet. So do you remember that toilet originally began with the French toile? And toile was a piece of cloth and it was particularly a piece of cloth that was hung over your head. And there is the most brilliant quote in the OED about the toilet, which always gets kids sniggering because originally you would wear a toilet on your head. And let me see if I can find this for you. The ordinary citizens, this is from 1714, the ordinary citizens' wives and daughters wear a kind of toilet on their heads with a long fringe which covers their faces and drives away the flies like horse trappings. So, toilette. Toile is yes. a linen cloth. A toilette is a small linen cloth, and that's the origin of it. A, f- yes. a piece of cloth floating over your head. Yes. 
And so toilet was then the place where you went to adjust your headdress. And then eventually it was applied to other things that were kept in that room, including, you know, what would we now, we would now call a loo. Great. Well, this is Something Rhymes with Purple, the hairy edition. We'll take a quick break. See you in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine a world, a world just like our own, but importantly, not our own. Is it the alternate dimension, or are we? And does it have podcasts? The Last Post. Hi, I'm Alice Fraser, bringing you daily news from a parallel universe. It's a sweet, sweet dose of satirical news coverage, some of which will sound pretty familiar. He defended him, saying he broke the lockdown rules on a father's instinct. And I just think if Boris had shielded his as much as he's shielding Cummings, he might actually be in a position to give parenting tips. And some of it is just pretty weird. Air in space is becoming much clearer, Alice. And it's quite shocking because there is no air in space. It's empty space. So join me every single day alongside great comedians from around the world, including Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Tiff Stevenson and Will Anderson. Good luck to you. Susie, you say there are lots of words that have a connection with hair Hmm. that are words we wouldn't think of having connection with hair. Yes. Give me me some examples. Oh, gosh, I'll give you an eclectic collection. So there's Comet. Um, which goes back to the Greek for a long-haired star, which is exactly what it looks like. Oh, is it? a comet that flies through the, the sky. Mm. Oh, that's ingenious. I like that. It's nice, that. isn't it? Comet is. And similarly, the cirrus cloud, that goes back to the idea of a curl or a ringlet. Um, that's the origin uh, of that one. So if you see a cirrus cloud in the sky, um, it looks like a curl-like tuft or a fringe. Um, or a tendril. So, you know, it looks very wispy, doesn't it? It does look like a lock of wool, a cirrus cloud. Um, So that's that one. What else can I give you? There is, well, if you address someone, originally you would actually sort their hair out. Oh. Um, You would dress their hair. Oh, so like saluting somebody now to say, I'm I'm addressing you, meaning I'm speaking to you. That began, the origin of that word is to address one's hair. Well, it emerged pretty much at the same time, the two meanings. So it was one of the first meanings of address. It's, it didn't necessarily all begin with that, but it was the idea of paying attention to someone. And in this terms, of, you know, in, in this case, it was quite a literal thing. One that I really like is horrible and horror. Horrible. And words yes. from those. Yeah. So they, have you heard of horripilation? No. Okay. So horripilation is the technical term for your hair standing up on end. So oh, I like that the, word. Say it again horripilation. I wonder if that ever actually happens. Well, cats have horripilation all the time, don't they? Oh, you see it, yes. And yes, my hair genuinely does stand on end, even either when I'm really cold or when I'm quite scared. 
Um, anyway, that goes back, all of those go back to the Latin horere, which means exactly that hair standing on end. So a horrible experience with literally a hairy one. Oh, that's amazing. Hair this raising. is the ta- this is why people have been thinking, have been listening to this episode. Why am I listening to this? Why on earth <laughs> why, am I listening? Why, why? There's Susie going on, then Giles interrupting now and again. What's what's going on here? Now you know why. Horror and horrible in their yes. origin is a hair raising experience. Exactly. How amazing. Mm. And is that Greek, Latin? That's Latin. That's for the Romans, yes. Yeah, so it goes back to ancient Rome. Gosh. Um, and that's why we talk about a hairy experience or a hair-raising experience. And we've talked before about the hair of the dog as well, haven't we? Yes. Originally, it was an ancient remedy where you would pluck a hair from a dog that had bitten you and you would make a poultice out of it and apply it to the wound. And that was then later applied to alcohol. I've got a vague memory of the word capricious, having something to do yes. with mountain goats. But is no. it also got something to do with hair? Not mountain goats, although, well, actually, mountain goats do come into the story. So originally, capricious goes back to the Italian capriccio, which meant hedgehog head. So again, it was about hair standing on end. So if you were capricious originally, you were probably kind of quite scared rather than whimsical. But because of the mountain goat that you mentioned, it became associated with capering about and being quite frisky. And that's where the kind of jumping from one idea to the other came from, um, that meaning of capricious. Do you ever have bad hair days? That's another phrase that's gone into the Oxford Dictionary. I'm afraid at the moment every day is a bad hair day. Yes. Well, it's quite interesting that hair has become so wrapped up with our sort of soul and spirit that we speak of a bad hair day not only as being one way hair looks bad, but also where you're actually feeling quite dejected because nothing goes right. And we've traced that back to the 1980s. And I remember being in Oxford University Press when people found an earlier record of it. I think they'd got a record from the 1990s and they found one from the 1980s. And I remember thinking, what? It must go back way earlier than that. But anyway, yes, they've been with us for a while. Bad hair days, not so good hair days, I think. About... Fifty years ago, the early 1970s, I was involved in a group of people who were investigating seriously the problems of pornography. Mm. And we did a kind of survey of the pornographic industry in Britain. And I was taken to visit a studio where they were making pornographic films. And I was introduced there to a word I'd never heard before. Oh, I think, can I guess, can I guess? Yes. Fluffer. No, merkin. Oh, Merkin. Merkin. You can tell me about Fluffer in a second. The Merkin, Merkin, you must. The Merkin was a pubic wig. And these were low budget movies. Uh, Pornography was low budget. I don't know if it still is. I've not really given it much thought since all those years ago. I got more than enough in that big year that I was spending studying pornography. But they had these Merkins out because they had blonde Merkins and uh, auburn Merkins and Mm -hmm. ginger Merkins of every kind. And so that the artists, the same artist could appear in different scenes as a different character Uh because you were only seeing, mostly you were seeing... From the waist down. You were seeing their, as it were, private parts. Their face was neither here nor there. Yes. What is the origin of the word merkin? I literally just looked this up for you because I genuinely didn't know. Well, it made me smile. It's either a variant of a dialect word, malkin, which meant a a mop or a bundle of rags fastened to the end of a stick for cleaning out a baker's oven. (laughs) Don't try that with your merkin. Or 
a pet form of the female forename Mary, because sometimes the nickname for Mary was Marykin. But what Mary has got to do with Merkins, history doesn't tell. Yes. Out of interest, what is or was in this context a fluffer? Damn it. I just I don't know why, why I mentioned this. You brought okay. it up. Well, a fluffer, I'm going to put this euphemistically, in the porn industry, a fluffer is someone who prepares the man before he goes on. Ah. Well, I use prepare euphemistically. Of course you do. But here, also, if you look in the OED, it's got that sense as someone who stimulates the man before he goes on. But it's also a worker on a railway system employed to clear the track of any rubbish. So be careful not to confuse the two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my own man's a fluffer. Yes. Works, works on the railways. It could go horribly oh, wrong. It could go control. horribly wrong. Oh, dearie me. Yeah. Well, there we are. Edited highlights, golden moments. Um, but it's all educational. It's all educational. Enough of Merkins. We must remember this is a family-friendly podcast. In fact, speaking of family-friendly, let's have some family-coined words because people have been writing to us, haven't they, about those? Oh, yes. We've had so many of these because we, we wondered a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, which words people regularly use in their family but that aren't used anywhere else. So Sharon Griffiths has said that many moons ago during a trip to the supermarket, her then three-year-old asked her dad if he needed any face sharpeners. She's now age 40, but razor blades are still called face sharpeners in their family, which I think is lovely. That phrase, actually. Laura in Oxford, their favourite family word um, coined by their two-year-old is jumpoline for her trampoline and fairy tales for her pigtails, which mm. is lovely. Really nice. What's the origin of trampoline? That's a very good question. Okay, I have my... Trampoline. Jumping up and down on a trampoline. Is it um, a... Is it like Hoover, one of those words that was the name of a product that has oh. come into the language? No. Or Lilo? It's from the Italian trampoli, meaning stilts. So originally oh. in Italian, you know, this I've never known this. This is a great find for me. In Italian, trampolare meant to go on stilts. So that's quite cool. So there's a whole idea of being high up. I love that. Goodness. Trampoline. Yeah. Very hmm. good. So there we are. This is the joy of this programme. We learn things. Oh, we've got one more of these. Yes, go on. So we've got Bev Ratter from Hampshire, who um, loves discussing the podcast with her twin sister, Joe Dodds. And she's emailed in to say, they do an Alfie in their house. And this comes from the lovely Shirley Hughes book, Alfie's Feet. I used to love the Alfie books. Alfie goes to buy new wellies, then puts them on the wrong feet. So doing an Alfie in their house is to put the shoes on the wrong feet. And then from doing an Alfie, Kevin Brackley tells us about doing a rear in their family. If anyone burns something they were trying to cook, they said they had done a rear, which is from a BBC Two programme, Butterflies, where Wendy Craig plays a character called Rhea who always burned the family dinner. And finally, Fiona Lansdowne called boiled eggs, bald eggs, because they are, that's a bit of an egg corn. I love that one. We also heard from the dance family in Derbyshire who mm. say, we love your podcast and our 12-year-old Florence is especially enjoying it as she's an avid reader. Florence, forget the Merkin bit, darling. We moved on. Uh, Florence has asked what left in the lurch means. Mm. What is a lurch and where would you find it? Actually, these are very good questions. Thank yeah. you, Tams and Gary, Florence and Polly in Derbyshire. That's brilliant. Well, uh, it actually goes back to a game, a French game that was called Lurch. 
L-O-U-R-C-H-E, which was a game that resembled backgammon. And this would be played in the 16th century. So we're going back a very long way. And if in the game you were in the Lorsch, you were in a situation in which you were probably going to lose. So if you've been left in the lurch, basically you you had someone who was enormously ahead of you and, you know, the loser might then score nothing. So you used to be able to save the lurch as well. But that's where it goes from. And as you say, it comes from, it's a very good question. Can we squeeze in one more? This is from Barbara Wheatley. Hello, Susie and Charles. Love the podcast. Aren't words wonderful? Yes. I grew up in the Lake District and we use a term to describe when you go over on your ankle or on a cobblestone, perhaps. Mm. We say we have cockled over. Mm. My husband, a Midlander, thinks it's ridiculous. And I've made up the expression. Can you arbitrate, please? I know it to be a real expression. Why? What's the origin? Gosh, there's so many different meanings of cockles, aren't there? Um, Warm the cockles of your heart and that kind of thing. Well, I have to say that it's not a made-up word. You are not mad. And cockle is is in the Oxford English Dictionary, meaning to kind of um, fall over or stumble, etc. They don't completely know where it comes from. But it might come from the idea of cocking as in, uh, how can I put this in a family friendly way, sticking up, but particularly sticking up in an insecure or unstable way. So the idea is that if you cockle, you totter or you wobble. So you're in danger of overturning. Yeah, you need a fluffer to help you out. Mm. (laughs) You might well do. The cockles of the heart, incidentally, they go back to um, cockle meaning uh, coquille in French, which means a shell particularly the shell of a mollusk, which is why we talk about eating cockles today. It's a sibling of conch, in fact, which gave us conquer, but that's a different story. And the cockles of your heart are so known because they apparently resemble a closed cockle shell or the heart resembles a closed cockle shell. That's where that came from. Susie Dent, I hope you've got three really wonderful special words for me this week because I've got a truly wonderful poem for you. Oh, well, I'll do my best. There's one I've spoken about in the past that if you want to fob off one of your children because you're busy doing something and you haven't really got time to go and play a game with them, so you give a little excuse. One in the old dialect used to be making a whim-wham for water wheels. Um, So it's like, oh, hi, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just making a whim-wham for water wheels. It's nonsensical. It doesn't mean anything. And this one's connected to that. It's a Lancashire word from Britain, meaning rubbish or nonsense. And it's bobbins. Mm. And it goes back to the textile industry. And a bobbin was a spindle used for winding and unwinding thread. So it, because it was small, it was taken as to be something trivial. So you might just say, oh, that's a load of bobbins. Oh, I like it. a bit polite. Bobbins. And then in dread, I quite like, obsolete verb from the OED. To in dread is to feel a secret dread of, of something you can't actually quite articulate it. Oh, that often happens to me. something in secret, yes. Oh, no, but I, I wake up at five in the morning with, with in dread. Yes. A secret. I don't, can't work it out. Why am I feeling so anxious? I've got nothing to be anxious about, and yet yes. I am. Okay. Have you got a third um, word? I have. It's if you are someone who consistently fails to take notice of things around you, you may be a daydreamer or uh, that's putting it nicely, or you may just be somebody who just literally is unobservant. You can call yourself an inadvertist. An inadvertist, one who is forever failing to take notice of things. Yeah. I'm afraid my wife thinks I'm one of those, but only because I'm so self-absorbed. Those are three very good words. Yes, thank you. I have been thinking this week, and this leads to my poem, about Mae West. I was thinking about her. She is a film star. 
Yes. She began in the 1920s and she went right on to the 1960s. She was a remarkable lady. Uh, sex was her calling card. Yes. She was a strong woman, a pioneering woman in the entertainment and movie industry. She finds her way into the dictionary. There is a Mae West. What is it? It's a life jacket, isn't it? It's a life. Yes, yeah, a life jacket. Yeah, I because, think. Because she had a big bosom. Because she was quite pneumatic. Let's and put it that way. That's why it's called a Mae West. That's not why I want to celebrate her this week. I want to give you a poem that she wrote when she was just 15 years of age. Oh, wow. Mae West uh, will be known particularly to our listeners in North America. She wrote most of the films she appeared in. She wrote her own material. Mm. What's the most famous line from a movie? I know. I was just trying to think of that and I can't remember. Tell me her famous quote. Why don't you come up and see me sometime? Yes. That's the line. That's how the line ends up in the movie. I mean, she's also famous for saying, you know, uh, is that a gun in your pocket? Are you pleased to see me? Yes. But uh, come up and see me sometime is the famous line. And it was censored. And the it, it, the film is She Done Him Wrong. And the, the famous line had its wings clipped by the censors. As she originally wrote it, it should have been delivered. Why don't you come up sometime and see me? Make it Wednesday. Wednesday's amateur night. Isn't that <laughs> a great line? A she was a remarkable down. lady. Anyway, here yes. is the poem that okay. Mae West wrote when she was just 15 years of age. Okay. And the poem is called Cave Girl. I got my smile from the sunshine. I got my tears from the rain. I learned to dance when I saw a tiger prance and a peacock taught me to be vain. A little owl in a tree so high, he taught me how to wink my eye. I learned to bill and coo from a turtle dove, and a grizzly bear taught me how to hug. But the guy that lived two caves from me, he taught me how to love. Wow. That's quite something, isn't it? It's charming. Age 15. It's it's witty. He taught me how to love. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, it is. It's a great line, actually, because you expect something else after it and then you just, you're left with that hanging and makes you think. Thank you, Mae West, for that. If any of you listening have good Mae West stories, do feel free to share them with us. You can tweet us, you can email us at purple at somethingelse.com. Obviously, we can't answer every question, but we'll try our best. And do please spread the word. Recommend us to friends. Put out nice messages about us. Yes, we'd love some more reviews. We'd very much appreciate it. If you can, yeah. if you can possibly find the time. Something right. Rises with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Harriet Wells, Grace Laker and Gully. Oh, Gully, where's your merkin? Oh, Gully, I've just realised where your merkin is. You're wearing it round your face. 